Hi. <laughs> Want to make sure that y'all feel okay here, y'all. Y'all all right? Good, good, good. Um, so I'm going to open with my own caveats about things because I I know that you know. Your pastor and I, we've had a lot of conversations a lot about, about a lot of different things. And um, I wanted to reassure him, I've been in spaces like this before where it may not be what I'm personally accustomed to, but I also realized that y'all meet me for the first time. So let me just share a couple things about myself. So you're not nervous or caught off guard if certain things occur. <laughs> um, been doing this for a pretty, pretty long time. Uh, 41 years old and I've been kind of dealing with this book called the Bible in a preaching form for almost 25 years. I like to holler sometimes and shout about things that excite me. I'm liable to climb on furniture sometimes. Look, some of y'all get nervous already. <laughs> I'm a big man, so I kind of sweat like I did when I played football. That's why I have a towel. So don't get nervous. If you see me go to it, it is because I know that I'm warming up. <laughs> the thing about being in the life of the church, body of Christ, is that we have many diverse perspectives about what it means to be church. Just for, just for the record, I'm actually starting right now. So <laughs> We have very, very diverse ideas about what it means to be church. We have a lot of issues that concern us as church. There are a lot of things happening in the world that people don't want to talk about, but we are called to address as the church. And one of my biggest struggles is that a lot of times we find ourselves on somewhere on this continuum between put my head in the sand and find a way to do everything possible to prove that I follow Christ and I love everybody and I want everybody to be all right. And sometimes on that continuum, we can find ourselves going through the motions and forget that the real key to all of this is one main investment. One main investment that you don't even have to argue about. <laughs> one investment that nobody has to discuss other than how do we make sure that we're continuing the investment 
every day. John 15, 12 through 17 says, this is my commandment, <laughs> that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Lay down his life, friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is the investment. Love is the investment. If you ever wanted to find out or know what is literally going to change the world and transform people, love is the investment. People question, well, how can we make people feel comfortable? in spaces. How do I know that people will feel welcome in the place where I am? How do I know they're going to be comfortable around me? I ask that question all the time because I live in a world where, as you can probably tell, you know, might be a little bit intimidating to some people. No, not because I'm black, but because I'm a 350-pound man. I walk down the street and I look like I still get on a football field somewhere. My, my cardio is out of date, of course. I'm not going to be making millions of dollars on today for hitting somebody on a field. But I see how people look at me sometimes and they don't know that I have four degrees and I have an eight-year-old, which I found out is on his way to being quite large. Folk don't know anything about me. They don't know how to feel when they're around me until I might sit down with them, listen to them, talk about absolutely nothing. Do you know Spoiler alert, most pastors don't want to talk about their jobs. We'd rather sit down somewhere outside of this space and talk about things that you might actually be thinking about. For instance, I'm a huge wrestling fan. I want to know, do you dig what I dig? How long have you been watching it? <laughs> Heck, do we have the same favorite wrestlers? 
Did you know that crazy me actually likes to bake now? I can't even believe it. I can't bake cookies to save my life. But I can do all these other intricate things. It's amazing. All this stuff can come from one conversation. But here's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in actual, real, you can't manufacture it, God-given love. See, the thing about love is you can't come up with some kind of formula. You can't come up with a method. You got it or you don't. And check this out. We literally read a text. Jesus says, this is not just something I want you to arbitrarily come up with. This is my commandment. (laughs) I want you to do this. This is not optional. It is not optional because one day you feel like you don't want to be bothered with people. It is not optional because you want to prove that you can be loving in this state, but not love one another in another state. This is what I need you to do. (laughs) Love one another as I have loved you. I mean, can you think about all that Jesus did? I mean, think about it. Jesus picked 12 dudes that had nothing in common. I mean, Peter wanted this. Peter was always angry. I mean, I can prove it because he cut a guy's ear off. Judas, I mean, my man had money issues. He was always skimming off the top. He's willing to sell out Jesus for a little bit of change. I mean, he had one guy that was, you know, he was always involved in the extreme of the political cycle. He was a zealot. He would cause trouble. He chose him. He chose two guys that had mommy issues. James and John. (laughs) Oh, you you forgot that, you know, where... You know, their mama said, find out who's going to be on the right and left hand of Jesus. And Jesus is looking at him like, well, if you're going to do all that, you're going to have to suffer like I suffer. And you don't want those issues. (laughs) He chose all kinds of people, but it was rooted in, I believe, not in just where they are. I believe in what they can be when they're exposed to the right thing. Think about the issues that pervade. When you deal with racism and sexism and all the isms and schisms, most of the ways that you can deal with it is not by just what you do, but where it begins from. Because I love you, I'll fight for you. That's different. 
because I care about your existence, I advocate for you. <laughs> Not because it's right, but because it is rooted in the fact that I want you to be 100% who you are and be comfortable in being in that space. Otherwise, I'm just doing church the way that people feel like church should be done. It's that whole, it's that whole moniker of, you know, do we go to church or are we being the church? It's that whole, am I a part of the organization or am I really living this thing out? That when I'm not at Central City and people see me in the street, will they know me by what it is that I have invested in the world through the love that Christ has given me? Think about it. Think about what Jesus is saying. I'm giving you a commandment. I'm telling you that there's no love that's greater than this, that someone will lay down their life for their friend. And I'm not, only, I'm not only saying that, I'm telling you, you are my friends. You're not my servants, you're my friends because servants don't know what the master's doing. <laughs> servants don't have insight into the mind of the master. <laughs> I'm literally giving you the whole playbook. <laughs> I am not hiding nothing from you. And in the same way that I'm giving it, you need to give it to everybody else. I care about what you think so much <laughs> that I'm not going to hide anything from you. I'm not going to keep stuff from you because I want you to take this and transform the world. And guess what else? You didn't choose me. I chose you. See, that's the beauty of God. See, we miss, we miss it sometimes. We think that we chose, chose the Lord and we found God. No. Kind of chose us. It's kind of like, it's kind of like how I got with my wife. Ready for this story? <laughs> my wife and I known each other for at least 25 years. We've been friends for 25 years. We've been married for 10. I wanted to date her way back when. I had good sense. I ain't one fool with a whole bunch of people. I, I, people say there's a whole lot of fish in the sea. Well, wherever I was on the shore of that sea, it was pretty light. I knew everything about her. I wanted to be with her and all that stuff. And she was dating other cats, so I was in the eternal friend zone. <laughs> well, it was good that we stayed friends. Because one day, both of us, we had relationships that were going on, and they broke off around the same time. And we weren't really consoling each other about it. My, my situation, I was actually happy. I was set free. You know, when you say hallelujah, it should have punch. <laughs> it had punch. When I was free, she was in a bad situation, she was free. 
I wasn't trying to pursue her. I was trying to take my time, mind my business. We talked a lot because we are close friends. And one day, back in the uh, old days of Skype, <sighs> see, now you know how deep this is? When we start talking about Skype being old, that's deep. Back in the day, talking about being on Skype, she was at school in Florida. I'm up here. I'm doing what I'm doing. We talk almost every day. And then she, told, she tells the story. She says one day she caught herself on camera and she realized that she needed to get herself together. So she started doing her hair and things like that while on camera. I didn't notice. All of a sudden she says to herself, for whatever reason, oh my God. <laughs> for whatever reason, I think he's cute. So she prayed a prayer. And please don't ever tell, whoever, whoever you're with, never tell them that you, that you or somebody else prays this prayer. But she prayed a prayer. She said, Lord, if he's the one, make it that I can't see nobody else. Like, I'm blinded to everybody else. But if he ain't the one, make me so repulsed by him. <laughs> I was not good for my self-esteem. The light bulb clicked for when she went and did a, she was at a youth ministry and they did this thing called Fear Factor and she had, to, and they actually did Fear Factor things that she had to put a, a goldfish in her mouth and walk across it. Yeah. And she came out of that experience and she says, and I quote, when she talked to me later and told me about it, she said, um, well, if I could carry a goldfish in my mouth, certainly I can be with you. Wow. <laughs> Not good for the self-esteem, but I take it. And we're still married to this day with a beautiful eight-year-old. Because I didn't reject how she got there, but she got there. I had to get there. What love does is it allow people to get to where it is that they can see themselves for themselves. It allows for people to be seen in a different light. It allows for people to be able to say, oh my goodness, I am really cared for. And if we can't do that for one another, how do we draw people into the kingdom of God? How do we make people feel safe? All the things we want to address as the church, it's good. All these things that we want to deal with, it's good. All the things that we see that are injustices and all that stuff and everything else, all that bad stuff that we want to eradicate, that motive is good. But what happens when you get tired of going through the process? What happens when you get tired of advocating and you don't see change? What happens when suddenly the things that you have put your energy into, it still doesn't seem like it's going to break through? It means that we have to go back and see what we're really investing in this. 
I don't want people to ever do anything for me out of a place of guilt. I don't want people to ever see me and think to themselves, because of what position I am in life, I have to make up the difference now that I know what I know. If you're going to do it, love me in the process. Don't guilt trip yourself. Love. That's what Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus never did anything out of guilt. Literally was the manifestation of God in the flesh and did anything from a place of I want to restore you because you are the creation that is most like me, but have been most disconnected from me. And whatever it takes to make that happen, I'll do it. Not because it has to be rectified, but because I love you first. The investment of our love yields a few things and I'm done. When you are investing your love into the world, the first thing it shows is evidence of our commitment to Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. You are committed to the commandment. You are committed to the cause because you have said within yourself, I am not going to do anything but love from a real place. Because when I do it, I am most like God when I love people. I am most like God when I care about your existence. I am most like God when I give the best of myself to those who need it. Second thing it yields is a willingness to be like Christ. I don't want to just be seen as an individual that people can look up to. I want to be seen as a person that is willing to be like Christ. The challenge of being a disciple of Christ, to being a follower of Jesus Christ, is that we don't realize that is literally an apprenticeship to do as Christ has done. If you're an electrician, you got to go through a process of apprenticeship, taking everything you've learned and learning how to apply it well. And it is only when you finish the apprenticeship that you become what? A master of the craft. <laughs> I cannot become a master of this craft called being a believer if I'm not in constant practice, if I am not working this thing on a regular basis. If I'm not finding a way to make sure that I demonstrate all that I learn about being like Christ, if I don't do that, I am not learning how to master what it is to make sure that I love beyond a mandate. It's no longer a mandate. It becomes a part of my DNA. I do it because this is just who I am. I know you can't really tell this, but I am um, 
I'm a big softy. It don't look like it. I'm a big, I'm a big softy. My son, when he's going through things, and he'll be like, I just don't know why I'm sad. I don't know. And I just look at him sometimes, and I'm like, you all right? He's like, I don't know. He's like, Daddy, I don't know. And I'll just look at him, has that look on his face, and I'm just like, you need a hug? He's like, mm-hmm. So imagine about a five-foot-three, 180-pound, eight-year-old. That's my son. Big, solid kid. And all he wants to do is hug his daddy. And I, and I look at him like, I, I can do this. <laughs> like hugs, I do hugs really well. Sometimes people, all they need is a hug. They don't need, they don't need a list of how to get through stuff. They don't need a to-do list of how to overcome all this stuff. Sometimes they just need that. Jesus didn't always talk. Sometimes he just did. Think about the woman caught in adultery and they try to bring her to Jesus and say, what you going to do about her? <laughs> and he kept on writing in the sand. He ignored everybody. And then he, they kept on browbeating him and he said, listen, if you, if you haven't sinned, go ahead and stone her. <laughs> they all walked away. But she stayed. Jesus looks up and says, basically, where are your accusers? And then like, they left. Then he looks up and said, hey, I ain't judging you or accusing you. Go on. <laughs> Jesus did not give her a lecture on holiness. Jesus didn't give a lecture on how to be this best person. <laughs> he relieved the stress that that woman was facing. The woman came to a well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she was tired of people talking about her. He had a conversation about water. <laughs> and the conversation about water turned into her liberation from the guilt and shame that she had. Tax collectors turned over their ill-gotten goods and gave it back to the poor. Just by being willing to love them where they were. <laughs> Not to love them into something we want to create, but to love them where they are, which then causes them to become the best version of themselves. Got to be willing to be like Christ but we also have to have availability to bear fruit for Christ. <laughs> you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should be able to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus chose us not to have a bunch of people follow him, <laughs> but literally to become fruit bearers that have perpetual fruit that lasts literally to become a tree that's planted with great roots that brings forth fruit 
every season. What you do now is not just for 2022. <laughs> it's not just for 2023. It's for 2123. How you treat someone today <laughs> could literally be the difference and how that person's life becomes something totally different. Here's a story that I'll finish with. Now, I'm not going to ask if people partake in this stuff, but the story is great. It's a great story. Y'all know who Jack Daniels is? Don't get nervous. <laughs> Do you know who Jack Daniels is? Okay. There's a story that is very well known today, and it was always known, but wasn't always circulated. Jack Daniels is not the originator of the Tennessee whiskey process. It's actually a guy, black man named Nearest Green. Nearest Green was an individual who began this process, <laughs> lo and behold, at a preacher's house. So this preacher wanted some good whiskey to be made and Nearest Green learned the process and he brought certain elements that were synonymous with certain processes that came from Africa. Created this amazing, wonderful spirit. Jack Daniels was a kid, <laughs> and he was a poor kid, <laughs> almost orphaned, basically. He came to this preacher's house, wanted to work there. He worked there, did some stuff, and as he grew up, he wanted to learn how to do all these things that Nearest Green did. She wouldn't let him until after a while. Learned the process, and because Jack Daniels was, as he grew up, a very, very good marketer, he eventually created his own still, got his own stuff, and brought Nearest Green with him. After a while, Nearest Green taught different people in his family about the process, and Jack Daniels whiskey became a huge thing. People say that the story was buried, but the funny thing is that the Daniels family and the Green family were the best of friends, even to this day. It was not something that was hidden, matter of fact, the Jack Daniels company always made sure that if anybody out of Nears Green's family wanted a job, they would always be taken care of. They always had a job, and if they didn't want to work there, they still took care of the family. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, now, hundreds of years later, the fastest growing whiskey company in America is Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest. 
Green family finally has legacy. The master distiller is a descendant of Nearest Green. And who's on the executive team with the nearest, with the Uncle Nearest brand? One of Jack Daniels descendants. Literally intertwined through a spirit. Let that marinate for a second. They're intertwined because of a spirit. When you love people, when you connect with people, when you bear fruit, you find yourselves intertwined by the spirit. I never have to question your motives because you're, the fruit that you bear will last. You think that what you did for somebody on the side of a road was important? It was. Because <laughs> you don't know if that's going to lift them to a whole nother place that they never thought they would be. There are no little moves. There are no such thing. There's no such thing as demonstrating love on a small scale. The love of God lasts. And the fruit of that love lasts even longer. So in seasons like this, when you may question all kind of different things, remember that what you do for the Christ does last. Amen. <laughs>